You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke and the second chapter. We're going to be reading together the first 20 verses. You'll find this on page 857 of the Pew Bible. This is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and we'll read together verses 1 through 20. Hear the word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Well, of course, this passage is probably not unfamiliar to you. Luke records for us the birth of God's incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. And every birth is wonderful, of course. We're thankful for them in our church An immortal soul is clothed with flesh, enters the world. As David says, you formed my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Each baby is formed in secret, curiously made, magnificently presented. But the birth of Christ is something special. It stands out. It's totally unique. 
Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. In other words, he who was from everlasting and to everlasting was miraculously conceived and humbly born. And there has never been a birth like that of Christ, the promised Messiah. Luke dates his gospel in this passage by Rome's first and greatest emperor who reigned for 41 years. Caesar Augustus was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, and he was a master administrator. He established what historians have called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. He civilized the empire and he built a vast infrastructure. And in the providence of God, this opened the way for the rapid spread of the gospel. Every 14 years, Augustus ordered a census to be taken, of course, for the basis of taxation. There's nothing new under the sun, right? And it required citizens to return to their hometowns for registration because the government gets its money. And God ordained and overruled all this for his own redemptive purpose. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient of days. And so we find that Augustus Caesar unknowingly helped to fulfill that ancient prophecy. Little did he think of himself as an instrument in the hand of God, but as we're told by Solomon, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king's heart. And while in Bethlehem the time came for her to give birth, Paul describes it as the fullness of time, and God's plan was unfolding just as he intended. The point in history had arrived when God would intervene personally. He arrived in human flesh, born of a woman, born under the law. And the local inn was overcrowded with soldiers and government officials, so there was no vacancy. And so Jesus entered the world in a drab and humble stable, reeking of cattle. No glitz or glitter, no holiday aroma, no Kenny G playing in the background. The accommodations, I think, were indicative of his poverty and deprivation. Because you see, Jesus was impoverished. By sin, man has forfeited all the outward blessings of this life. And now in his mercy and grace, God continues to bestow them, children being one of the best, he gives rains and fruitful seasons and food and families, but we forfeited them. We have no right to expect them. And as a substitute for sinners, Jesus endured the miseries of this life. So that man was poor from birth. Poor in his birth. Poor throughout his life. And let me just say that man's heart is analogous to that overcrowded in, isn't it? There are many who have never given a welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. And oftentimes it's not due to a conscious hatred as if they reject him outright. No. It's just that their hearts have so much worldly clutter in them that there's no room. 
They're interested and zealous for the things of this earth, the prizes of the world, but for the great things of the world to come. Their love is cold, and their desires are idle, and their zeal is slight. And so just like that Bethlehem inn, their hearts refuse a welcome to Christ. And how tragic it is that they turn away the only one who could ever solve their problem. On that night when Jesus was born, something extraordinary occurred. There were shepherds, as you know, in the field, keeping watch over their flock. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. It was an otherwise typical night out in the fields guarding the sheep, and the still dark evening was interrupted by this strong, brilliant angel of the Lord. And such an experience was not common, even among God's chosen people. It was truly amazing. And it's no wonder they were struck with great fear. It was totally unexpected. This mighty angel appears, and God's glory shines. And what glory was it? The radiant brightness of the divine perfections filled the night sky. And they were frightened. They were frightened by the exceedingly bright and luminous appearance of glory. Let me ask, how would you have reacted? <laughs> the surprise alone must have been terrifying. Dread has always been the natural reaction of sinful man before the true and living God. Many examples in Scripture. Let me give you just one. Isaiah the prophet. He saw a vision of the Lord and he said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. They were terrified. But as has happened before in redemptive history, the angels said to them, fear not. This heavenly messenger was quick to put the shepherds at ease. It's as if he said, look, I come as an envoy from God and as a devoted friend to all of you. I'm your friend. Doesn't Hebrews tell us that angels are ministering spirits who serve the heirs of salvation? There's no need to fear. What he had to say would be a source of gladness. Behold, he said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And what is striking to me is that he announced this not to Caesar Augustus, nor to King Herod, not even to the high priest. He announced this to poor lowly shepherds in a field, mind you. I agree with J.C. Ryle, who said the things of God's kingdom are often hid from the great and noble and revealed to the poor because God is not impressed with earthly distinctions and the accolades of man. He often chooses what is foolish and weak and despised to shame mankind because the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, don't we? The Lord looks at the heart. And the angel proclaimed good news of great joy. And what greater joy could there be? Nothing short of genuine reconciliation and full acceptance with God. Man sinned. Man is guilty. 
and judgment looms. But there's good news because man need no longer be at odds with the Most High. There's no need to be hiding in fear because in Christ we are now able to stand boldly and upright in his presence. And what the angel said, therefore, has to do with the solution to man's greatest problem. This would be for all the people. Not universalism, but universal. Believing people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to anybody who embraces the good news will be given the gift of eternal life. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The long-awaited Messiah had finally arrived. He was born in the very place where it was foretold that he would be born. And the ancient promise of the woman's seed was fulfilled, and it was a matter of great joy. It wasn't invented by man. It was brought to man. And there was no news that could equal the good news of Christmas. To those who embraced it, it was like the news of a great victory. It foretold the defeat of a cruel and malicious and powerful enemy. On the night that the angels spoke the shepherds to the shepherds, the devil must have trembled because he heard it. The Son of God came into this world to destroy Satan's work and to save souls. And to confirm this message, a sign would be given. A baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Something predicted long ago when the prophet spoke to King Ahaz. In Isaiah 7, it says, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And this extraordinary Savior would arrive on earth as a baby in a manger. What a contrast. Who would ever have thought that the prince of princes would appear as a pauper? Solomon marveled that God would dwell in the temple that he had built. And it's a far greater wonder that God would dwell in a body of human flesh. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, said Paul, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And I think it's very strange for shepherds to see a baby and to believe in a savior. And if this contrast didn't deter the shepherds, I don't think it should ever deter us. And to accompany this good news of great joy, the angelic host began to sing. And it was sudden. And just as the angel finished, this multitude of heavenly host. And Daniel tells us that a thousand thousands serve God. He says that 10,000 times 10,000 stand before the Almighty. And that army of heaven came into view, singing the praises of the Most High. And it's noteworthy that the angelic choir acknowledged the divine glory first. God's glory is always first. Man's good is always second. Hallowed be thy name comes before, give us this day our daily bread. The glory of God. And the heavenly host, 10,000 times 10,000, stood in awe of the wisdom and the power and the grace of God. 
And in the Son's incarnation, then, the highest degree of divine glory is revealed. It's something into which that whole angelic multitude longs to look. And on that night, they got a glimpse, a glorious glimpse of the brilliant splendor of divine grace. I think one thing we should draw from this is that we should strive to imitate the example of Jesus Christ who humbled himself in his birth. You know, one of my heroes, John Flavel, says it this way, they that intend to build high should lay the foundation low. Jesus stooped from his majestic splendor. And does anybody on earth proudly boast of man? In Christ, you and I have the supreme demonstration of genuine humility. We celebrate the incarnation, and that's right. But think of how humbling it was for him. The infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God assumed human nature, and he humbled himself. He was willing to stoop that low for our sakes. He who is God blessed forever assumed the soul and body of a creature and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He voluntarily humbled himself. He chose to stoop. We sing of the deep, deep love of Jesus and that proves our point. And did he stoop so low and do we boast as if we have any reason to do so? Of all the sins which plague our human existence, the worst of all is pride. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And scripture provides us with many examples of sinful human pride. Adam and Eve who plunged the human race into an estate of sin and misery because they wanted to be like God. King Nebuchadnezzar bragged about building the great city and he lost his reason. Naaman the leper refused to wash in the Jordan River and he almost missed the cure. King Herod, you remember? He welcomed the ascriptions of deity. He was eaten by worms. After God humbled himself, God humbled himself, how unseemly is it for man to be proud? Christ was humbled in his birth that we might be exalted at our death, and therefore, Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have within our souls this God-given tendency to boast in something. You feel it. You go to a great concert or an athletic triumph, a moving performance like this morning? We boast by nature, and yet there's nothing more worthy of our boast than the incarnate Lord Jesus, because in comparison to him, nothing in this world is worth boasting in. The heavens declare his glory. Corrie ten Boom, internationally known, famous, was once asked if it was difficult for her to remain humble. And this is what she said. Her reply was very simple. She said in response, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey 
And everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises. Do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that any of that was for him? Let's follow the example of the host of angels who sang glory to God in the highest. And let's celebrate Christmas with heartfelt joy and Christ-like humility. But there's a second lesson. Since Jesus humbled himself then, all who reject him now will perish. If the greatest love was revealed in giving Christ then the greatest evil must be in rejecting him. Because there's no guilt like the guilt of despising the gift of Jesus Christ. It tramples underfoot the Son of God. It scorns the present of the Most High. And alas, when the unbeliever is awakened by death and judgment, he'll give anything for Christ. But it will be too late. And that's why Paul says now is the day of salvation. And I know many don't like to, be, to dwell on such sobering topics, especially at Christmas. I get it. But you know something? If at this time of year we don't consider this, we may never have another opportunity. Jesus told a parable of a king who gave a wedding feast for his own son. And he sent servants to call those who had been invited. But they refused for one reason or another. And the king said, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So he invited others to fill the hall, but the first ones he cast out into outer darkness. Because you see, on God's part, there is nothing lacking for salvation. I don't know what anyone would have him do that he hasn't already done. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He offered himself and he died himself. And on that cross, he agonized more intensely than any of us can imagine. And as he writhed in pain, Christ bore the full weight of God's infinite wrath. And that's why he came into the world. That's the reason for Christmas. God sent his son into the world that the world might be saved through him. And therefore, nobody in hell can say that it was God's fault. The invitation goes forth. The Lord is ready to forgive and to accept fully anybody who embraces his son. And yet there are countless hearers of the gospel who listen but will not hear. They don't sense any need for it. They don't see the value of it, and they have no interest in it. You see, the gospel is an open door through which anybody may enter the kingdom. And Jesus said that relatively few will go through, but everyone is invited. But there's a third lesson, final. From this, I think we need to understand how precious your immortal soul is to God. It has been said, I think rightly so, that the worth of something depends on what one is willing to pay for it. And if that's true, 
See how valuable your soul is by the price that God was willing to pay. He sent his own son on a mission of death to redeem your soul. And so Peter tells us, you were ransomed not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He gave his son. He gave his only begotten, sent him into the world to die. And if we consider just how dear Christ is to the Father, then we can appreciate the price that he paid. He's the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And when Christ left heaven for earth, it was as if God parted with his heart. You parents who send your kids off for one reason or another, you have an inkling of what the father felt. The incarnation of God's Son is one of the greatest demonstrations of love the world has ever seen. And does that not teach us about how his appraisal is of your human soul? Jesus is of infinite value. And that means that God considers your soul priceless. There are some... Perhaps there are many, I don't know, who struggle with low self-esteem. And on the one hand, we should all realize that we're sinners and we fall short. And for that reason, we should recognize that there's no room for pride. But on the other hand, let's recognize how precious we are to God. What reason do we have of low self-esteem? The true and living God values us. He thinks your soul is priceless. I don't know why, but for reasons known only to him, he thinks your soul is priceless. And it teaches us that nothing in this world is equal to the value of a soul. This is what Jesus said. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This world is a beautiful place. God made it, filled it with resources. Jesus isn't saying that the material world is worthless. It's very good. But he died for the sake of souls. The angel announced good news of great joy for all the people. Charles V was the emperor of the Roman Empire in 1530. He was the heir of four of Europe's leading dynasties. Charles V. He also ruled over the extensive domains in central, western, and southern Europe, as well as the various Castilian colonies in the Americas. It was a vast empire. After a life spent in military exploits and ambitious projects and the enjoyment of royal privileges, this man, Charles V, resigned his crown and retired to a monastery. And he left these words, I have tasted more satisfaction in the solitude of one day here than in all the triumphs of my former reign. The sincere study and practice of the Christian religion have in them such joy as is seldom found 
in the courts of grandeur. Let's heed the advice and testimony of Charles V. Let's follow the example of the shepherds. And let's praise and glorify God for the Savior of mankind. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest gift you've ever given. We're thankful that during this season of the year we can celebrate this mystery of godliness, the incarnation of the Son of God. Please receive our praise as we sing it with joy and gratitude in our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.